cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, host of Chatting Cyber and the national co-chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence at Marshall McLennan Agency. Today's cyber celebrity, we have Mike Balboni. Mike, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, so Mike, you know, serving in the New York State Senate from 1998 to 2007, you know, you had really unique experience being September, uh, September 11th, 2001, you know, appointed to the first chairman of the, the Senate Homeland Security Committee, um, which effectively was really the, 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 the model for national legislation. Um, yeah. A local boy growing up, you know, a couple of towns away, I, I, I know you grew up in Garden City, New York. I was, you know, Belmore, Merrick, New York. I mean, was there any one pivotal moment that you feel like got you from, a, you know, the, the Long Island the Long Island uh, Garden City boy to growing up to being a senator of New York State. Sure, I mean, it's funny. Um, you know, when you when you think back, what are the moments that, that kind of put you on a path? There's no book that you take out of the library and says, "All right, this is this is the path you're supposed to follow." Right? It's it's all the opportunities that come in, and you got to try to be positioned and try to make your own luck. Uh, and and I've been very very uh, lucky, and a lot of the things that I've done, and it it uh, really begins with you know good education, family, stuff like that. Those are all the pillars, and we tend to always brush by that and, and go to, no, it's me, 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 look how wonderful I am. Well, no, there's so many people that have helped me get to where I am. But it really, really kind of began, I got first um, bitten by the bug of uh, politics in law school of all places, that I had a, a situation where um, I was embarrassed in front of my entire law school class by another student who was a little aggressive and, and because I didn't do well my first semester in law school. And I was prohibited as a result of that of not being able to run for <clears throat> a, uh, a student bar association in, in St. John's Law School. And um, so <laughs> I had to kind of lick my wounds. I did much better you know, for the rest of the time in, in law school and finished well. But, but then it came around to do the school-wide offices. And the person who had challenged me and embarrassed me was running for an office. And I said, well, th- I'm going to run against that individual ran, won, got bit by the bug. And, you know, it's very true. Once you win an election, it's really hard to get that out of your blood. I'm telling you, it, you know, it's really hard. So so then that took me basically to uh, – I looked for uh, governmental pursuits, and I went to Albany to work for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And all along the way, there were other opportunities. And one began to run for the State Assembly, and then the state senator who represented me passed away suddenly. And so there's an opportunity to run for the Senate. And you don't say no to these things. It's very competitive, lots of other people, but just go and you grab it. But then the, the, the real big moment came when um, I was in the Senate 10 years, and it was the end of the Pataki administration. And we went back to Albany for the single purpose of doing a pay raise. We hadn't done a pay raise in 10 years. And Pataki comes and says, we're not doing a pay raise. Um, the chairman of the, of the Republican uh, local committee becomes the state chairman, and I knew that he was not going to advance me for any uh, other job. And then the leader of the state senate gets up and announces that he's under federal invite indictment. Or, you know, and 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 Joe Bruno, God rest his soul, just a great guy. But I knew that there was going to be a very very difficult time um, going forward. And um, 
that's when I, I, I had already reached out to then Governor Elliot Spitzer to say, look, can I help you with, with transition? And he said, yeah, you know how you can help me? You become my Homeland Security Advisor. You can leave the Senate and become a Homeland Security Advisor. Very hard. That was probably the biggest decision, the hardest decision of my professional, governmental, and political career. Uh, but it really gave me this great opportunity because uh, um, I had got, I'd be, become the chairman after 9-11 of the Homeland Security Committee, learned all the different aspects of Homeland Security, including cybersecurity. And then when I became the Homeland Security um, Advisor for the governor, actually under two governors, I got a chance to see all the agencies. And, and one cool thing that, that maybe the, your audience would appreciate is that um, I learned that the, the chemical plants, if you think of Bhopal, India, the horrible, horrible situation, well, uh, chemical plants, in fact, were a problem in the U.S. and specifically in New York. They, they didn't have the kind of regulations that focus on infrastructure protection. So we created a, a, a way to do that kind of remotely, as it turns out, to be able to go and take a look at these different chemical plants. And I passed that. It became, an, uh, as you said before, a, a model for national legislation. The feds then did it. And then I became the person in charge of implementing it. So I saw it from, from the way it started, you know, found this to be a compelling cause, passed legislation, creating the law, oversaw the development of, of the regulations, and then actually saw the implementation by the Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Services within New York State. That, for me, is probably been the best view from start to finish of how government truly interacts. So, you know, Mike, I mean, it, it sounds like based off of your experience, it really is giving you that full 360 um, uh, a viewpoint to be able to see cyber risk, you know, truly holistically. Would you like to tell, um, uh, you know, I know that you're the, 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 the president and the CEO of Redland Strategies. Would you like to tell the, the crowd a, a little bit about the organization, how they may be able to find you on social media, uh, things of that nature? So uh, thank you very much, uh, Mark. We always like to, to talk about the, the love of this. Um, and a lot of people, I'll start by, by saying that the uh, this was created out of whole cloth. Like there, there was no company beforehand. It's not like somebody in my family had it or I bought it from somebody sure. else. This was, this was totally um, my baby. And, and whatever we create in life, we'd like to perpetuate, right? So what I, my philosophy has been um, a couple of different things. One, in the, I work with some incredibly bright, talented, decent people. You know, I have a rule, hopefully everybody on this podcast does, there's no need to work with idiots. You know, just, just don't do it, you know, or nasty people. Just pick, pick people who you interact with well and who provide a really great value and try to, to get them to join you. And so that's what I've done. I've reached out to a lot of folks who are the best and brightest in the state government and, and in, in the federal government, and they're working with me. So we've got, you know, folks who used to run the Department of Homeland Security in the state who used to run infrastructure prote uh, protection for the Department of Homeland Security in, in Washington, um, the head of the Emergency Management Office for New York State. They all come in and work with me. And what we do is we've kind of built a practice based upon government relations, based upon emergency management and crisis communication, uh, based upon cyber risk, cyber procurement as well. And then, you know, the other is, is essentially giving strategies for businesses as they try to navigate through the interface of government, business, and, and, and frankly, the opportunity to develop business. So we help companies with that. And then in the cyber practice, I have the great fortune of working with some of the biggest uh, tech companies in the world. So I represent Google, I represent Oracle, I represent Palo Alto, 
uh, pure storage, um, Tenable, um, Okta, uh, and, and, and you know, MTX. Uh, there's some very, very big companies and they kind of scale down. But what each of these companies have done for me is they've shown me another slice of the life. You know, sure. another, another aspect of the cybersecurity uh, defense network. And, and what we have done is we've worked with particularly the uh, state of New York and we've been able to help them with their strategies for data management, for uh, better efficiencies of, of uh, data processing and storage. And um, we have been able to work through some of the breach issues that, 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 that have emerged as threats over the time. And then the other thing, this, this dovetails very, very well with the other position that I have is, you know, the governor appointed me in the Senate confirmed uh, my position as a trustee on the New York Power Authority, which is the largest public utility in the nation. And I head up the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection Committee for that authority. I thank Governor Cuomo very much for that, for that opportunity. And first of all, I have to say, you know, the, the thing going back, don't work with idiots. Well, let me tell you what, everybody on that board, it happens to be the best group of people I've ever worked with. And I've sat on a lot of boards. They're all incredibly bright, have, have unique perspectives on things, unique skill sets. That's the other thing. You have to bring people together who bring different things to the table. Um, and, and so I've gotten a chance to see from the energy perspective what some of the threats are and, and how you implement security strategies. So what am I talking about? We, the, the Power Authority, I'm very proud to, to, to have been a part of this, has um, taken a digitization process so in other words, we're doing end-to-end -end digitization of the authority. Gil Keonis is the CEO. He's, he's a real visionary on this stuff. And, and the need for this is apparent once you consider the fact that energy doesn't happen the way it used to. In other words, it, it was really the utilities, they generate the, the uh, energy, they transmit it, and then they distribute it. Well, that's not really how it happens anymore because a lot of people in their own homes have become producers. Whether it's a renewable, it's a, it's a it's it's wind power, it's solar. Um, they have other generation capabilities, and they feed into the network. So, how do you monitor that? How do you make sure you, you don't have overloads? How do you make sure that, that you have a consistent, reliable uh, energy pathway? Well, that's what digitization does. It gives you microsecond analysis of how the energy transfers. But the issue is that each one of those sensors that you use with digitization is in and of itself. A Internet of Things component, and we all know some of the you know some of the really difficult difficult things about the exploitation of sensors and Internet of Things, and so there's encryption methodologies, there's security protocols that have been implemented to make sure that this is a safe, secure system. That has been incredibly important for my understanding of what can happen and what can't happen, because the risks are real now, because. I am walled off ethically from doing anything on, you know, with the power authority. Uh, this is really, um, I don't really do anything in the energy cyberspace, but I've learned because there are lots of really good um, uh, use cases to understand. And the one thing that I'd love to talk to your, your audience about is uh, a lot of people have talked for a while about the, whether or not it's possible to use the internet, to use a, um, a malicious payload to in fact take over a physical operating system. So, you know, what we refer to as the, the crossover from um, IT to OT, operational technology. And whether or not that happens, and of course, how do you work 
a physical uh, um, operation. You work it through supervisory uh, control and data access, what they call SCADA. That's the way, you know, th this came up, it started actually with the railroads because on these long, long railroad, railroad lines, you needed to basically turn on these tar pots that would burn and would keep the rails from freezing up. And so the guys didn't want to have to walk all the way out there or drive out there and do, so they developed uh, RFID and radio frequency capabilities to basically turn these things on. Aha, SCADA was born. Well, the question, can you manipulate that from the internet? And this was incredibly important when I was the Homeland Security uh, um, Advisor for New York. One of the other areas that I was uh, involved with was I was the nuclear notification officer, which means that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, we would have regular conversations with them about the safety and security of the four nuclear power plants in New York State at that time, it's about 2009. And we always talked about, well, uh, could they be compromised? from the internet. Could their SCADA networks be taken over? And up until recently, that was really kind of an urban legend. You see these videos about you know, um, tanks overfilling and, and maybe exploding. And of course, we heard about Stuxnet and the uh, nuclear centrifuges in Iran. But it really hadn't happened in, in the energy sector. Well, that changed in, uh, I think, again, 2018, 2017, in January in Ukraine when there were two power plants that basically were disrupted and um, uh, the um, malware was referred to as crash override. And um, essentially what happened was they took over and you can see the video of this, it's, just, it's on the internet. You can see the video of the screens, the control room screens of these two utilities being taken over and systems being shut down. And frankly, you know, this was something we always feared but here you saw it where it actually impacted the community. And so right before New Year's, parts of the city went dark. Now, everyone kind of suspects that it was the neighbor of Ukraine that was doing this to kind of send a message or whatever. But, you know, and certainly with Estonia, you know, we've seen uh, that Estonia is really a very digital society. And we've seen that they've had cyber warfare, as it were. And we, so we've seen the development of this over time. So that's why securing endpoints uh, making sure that that who ac has access to the system is uh, who they say they are, so authentication, um, that you make sure that the policies, in other words, who can get into what parts of your network, what types of, of, of data packets can get into your enterprise. These are all types of things. These are fundamentals of cybersecurity, and in the energy sector in particular, it's absolutely essential, especially when you consider that there was a report not too long ago from the FBI saying that in the energy sector, the malware is already resident in a lot of systems. It's already there and it's, it's lying dormant. It can uh, come to life again uh, upon an execute signal from the controller and then do malicious stuff. So anyway, that, that's kind of a, a broad ranging discussion of, of, uh, of the variety of different perspectives I've seen on cyber. Mike, it goes into what we're seeing on the insurance side. Bodily injury and property damage are becoming real concerns now that we've seen actually deaths arise from hospitals that were getting compromised, getting hit with ransomware, and not being able to provide the proper care for individuals. Now you're actually starting to see claims regarding death. So I suspect that, again, everything you're saying, we completely agree with. We're seeing it in a little bit different of a light. 
it's really nice to hear that you know you're refreshing perspective from a um, a macro level versus our our micro level with our individual clients. Um, you know, so we spoke a lot about you know the technology and 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 you know what really um, you know what what should we be listening to and perhaps what are some best practices. Um, we've heard a lot uh, recently in the news about election security, and um, now that we're post election, uh, we have a new president elect. Do you feel like there's any? Um, did you feel like there was any um, uh, foul business that happened with our electoral system uh, regarding this uh, recent presidential election? So uh, through working with the company you know, Palo Alto, what what we saw on the run up was a um, a real concern that there was going to be a compromise of the of the election um, cyber networks. And um, there were all sorts of, of intel that came out that, in fact, there was going to be attempts to try to disrupt the system. Well, we didn't, you know, now the election has happened. And I don't have any intelligence that says, in fact, it was done from a cyber perspective. But here's the other thing that I know intuitively. Boards of elections in various counties are islands unto themselves. A couple of years ago, I did a, um, a tabletop exercise for the, for the county of Suffolk in New York on Long Island, where we got all the different agencies involved, from the police department to um, this county executive's office, uh, their IT department. And we essentially went through a tabletop exercise of saying, all right, here's a breach. How would you respond? What would be the workaround? How would you mitigate it? How would you fix it? Type of thing. Not involved was the Board of Elections. Why? Well, because they're not a part of the county system. They're independent. They have a, a Republican representative and a Democratic representative. And they have their own budgets. And this I know for sure. The boards of elections have not always kept up through with their um, their legacy applications, with their um, patching, you know. And so there are opportunities for exploitation, the likes of which we saw with WannaCry. So, you know, I don't know if any of them were uh, compromised specifically, but I know this for someone a couple of weeks after the election to announce that this was the most secure election in the history of the United States is ridiculous. There's no way that they could know that. It might have been, but there's no way they could know that. So those sure. kind of proclamations, I think, actually are, um, are kind of deleterious, and I'll tell you why. Because we should have an appreciation that as our, com as our society moves to a virtual workforce, as the complexity of our uh, cyber operations grows, as the threat landscape continue to evolve, the threats continue to get more and more serious. And so we can't, I, my, my favorite saying is, you know, cybersecurity is not a destination, it is a journey. We must continue like to evolve because threats evolve. And that's why we need, everybody in, on this podcast should evangelize, evangelize, that's my word for the day, to people to say, you gotta have buy-in on cybersecurity. It's just, you know, the analogy I've used is uh, a lot of people view their computers, their operations as like, like their car in their driveway. They go outside in the morning. They don't open the hood and check to make sure that everything's aligned and everything's good. They just get in the car, turn the key on, they expect it to work. Same thing with turning on your, firing up your computer. I'm going to get on, access, it's going to work, and, and this is not going to be a problem. Yeah, I should do some hygiene things, but it's not really a, a major focus. Well, it should be a major focus right now because of the virtual workforce. Sure. And, and a couple of years ago, you know, again, the FBI came out and said, home routers, 
they are a vulnerability. Well, that's a terrifying thing for uh, you know the, the the average worker who's sitting there saying, "Wait a minute, my boss is saying I'm now going to Zoom here. I'm now going to you know do my work from my remote home. I have to invest on the cyber infrastructure." Yeah, kind of. And so, how do we do that? How do we how do we message that? How do we resource that? How do we educate people? You know, I'm a huge believer in understanding who your workforce is how they interact with your cyber network and, you know, phishing operations, spear phishing, whale phishing, you know, the, the um, always upgrading your policies. If there are open ports in your network, closing those ports, knowing who's on and who has access. These are the types of things that the, the, the governance of a business should be responsible, the IT governance. But most importantly, there needs to be a buy-in from the boardroom. You know, you need to have the CEO say, yep, this is a priority. We, 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 we find the exact same thing, Mike. If you don't have tone from the top coming CFO, CEO, general counsel, leadership, oftentimes the message doesn't necessarily get as uh, ingrained within the employee's um, mindset or skill set. So having top-down tone down, uh, top-down leadership Absolutely. Reviewing the policies and procedures, making sure, you know, access controls. Yeah. Agreed with everything that you were saying. Um, we, we, have, we have time for, I think, two more questions. Um, we just recently came out with vaccines um, or possible vaccines for the COVID-19 uh, virus. I understand that, you know, you are affiliated with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, I, I was curious, you know, how are some of these organizations um, um, impacted or how is COVID impacting some of these organizations, whether it's large sports teams or just large organizations that, you know, can't necessarily get the large crowd that they need to or that they normally, uh, normally have? So what it really re revolves around, you know, these, these are fan-driven events. And yet you, we, we don't see fans in the stands, obviously, with the Major League Baseball, um, you know, outside football, football teams having outdoor stadiums, they're still not allowed to have fans. So what about, how do you, how do you move that inside? That's really the principal question to make sure that everybody is safe. The NBA has come out with specific rules to keep everybody safe from the players, the coaches, the, the staff. Um, how do you move that out then to the, to the general um, uh, stadiums uh, and the arenas to make sure everybody's safe? Uh, everybody's working very, very hard to make sure that we have the cutting edge technology uh, the best strategy going forward so that the fan experience is the right experience and the safest experience possible. The, the challenge, of course, that, that is that a lot of jurisdictions are viewing the coronavirus epidemic differently. You know, some who have really advocated and are, are ready to go to full lockdown. Others are, are pretty open. And, and so if we have a national basketball association with teams that are traveling, there's a, another level of complexity associated with that. So, you know, we're all waiting for, for either the vaccine to provide a really, uh, you know, a great level of, of comfort for folks to go indoors and uh, within the government structure. But uh, I'll just tell you the, the distribution of a safe vaccine to enough people to bring us back to some sense of normalcy is not going to happen overnight. You know, uh, I, I think that the efforts to try to get a vaccine moving have been extraordinary. Probably the first time in history we've moved this fast on a vaccine. But adoption by the population, who's going to actually take vaccines? 
there's a there's a large percentage of people who won't take the flu vaccine. So so what is the public health messaging? You know, if, how do, what is the messaging for society to kind of get back on its feet and and have the social interactions again? Because we you know human beings we're social beings, and and I know that a lot of leaders are saying, look, stick with us for a little while longer. We will work this through. Well, that's certainly uh, the same issue for uh, any type of professional sports team. Sure. So, so, Mike, before we let you go, we spoke about a lot of things today, ranging from uh, COVID-19 to cybersecurity. Is there anything you'd like to discuss with our listeners that I haven't asked you today? Well, I, I think that uh, the, the thing that I'd love to see people really focus on more is asking the questions. You know, what have we put in place to defend our networks? What information can I get about the threat? Um, what resources can we access? You know, one of the things that, that a lot of people talk about, again, from the C-suite perspective is, it's not just enough to have kind of the best in class of your firewall providers, and not just enough to make sure you have you know, access authentication uh, software that is the best. Well, what, what uh, associations are you involved in? How are you talking to peers who may be the uh, chief information security officers for other companies? You know, sure. How are you sharing that kind of information? There's a government side, you know, the, the multi-state ISACs, it's a sharing network, it's a sharing platform. Then going back to the energy, there's the um, you know, NERC and FERC, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Northeast Reliability um, uh, Council. These provide a lot of information about threats for the energy sector, but but for the folks who are sitting at home now in a virtual workforce, what are the right questions we should be asking? Not just for the safety of the business operations, but frankly, for my home as well. Because the problem why ransomware is still a thing today is because people are paying the ransoms. We haven't figured out a way to truly stop that threat, and we need to do that sooner rather than later. Mike, thank you for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike.